listeners to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on September 21st, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Joining me today in the studio from NK News are NK News reporter Doug G. Hello. Writer come editor extraordinaire Oliver Hotham. Good afternoon. And analyst Peter Ward. Good evening. And today we'll be discussing the three-day truck, sorry, the three-day Kim Moon summit that finished just yesterday and talking a little about going forward in the coming weeks. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. For those who are already subscribers to NK News, we encourage you to consider NK Pro, which has extended features and special analytical tools and databases. NK Pro subscribers are also invited to our regular offline in-person events. We had one this morning. That was fabulous, wasn't it? It was very good, yeah. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. And just before we begin, an appeal to any listeners out there who are present in Pyongyang for the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students in early July 1989. Next year marks 30 years since this eight-day event, which was, in a way, North Korea's answer to the Seoul Olympics that took place the year before. And I would love to interview some people who are there for a 30th anniversary podcast special. Not 30th anniversary of the podcast, but 30th anniversary of the festival. Maybe so if one, you were there, maybe one day, one day, yes. So if you were there, or you know someone who was, please write to us at podcast at nknews.org. Now on to our roundtable of the summit. As I alluded to, it was a three-day summit, but I'm going to jump around a little bit like a uh, a rugby football. Let's start with the big question first. Namely, Kim Jong Un promised to visit Seoul for the next summit the next North-South Summit. He said it would be within a year or within this year, I forget which, but will he actually come? Dagyan, what do you think? Um, I think he will definitely visit Seoul this year because um, during the after-record briefing, one South Korean official said that um, there has been opposition from the United Foreign Department at the Workers' Party of Korea about the Kim Jong-un's possible visit to Seoul's but Kim Jong-un made his unilateral decisions on his visit to Seoul. So I think Kim has strong determinations to visit Seoul this year. Didn't I'm sure there's more than just uh, opposition from the United Front Department. I'm sure that the uh, the Palace Guard or whatever it's called also would be uh, very much not in favor of it. To Peter, you were going to say? Wait, didn't Moon say that uh, he would come within the, before the year's end? The agreement says before the end of the year. Okay, so then, so, so Dagam is correct. So he's got three months, basically, October, November, December, to, to make a showing here in Seoul. Do you think it'll go ahead, Peter? Uh, yeah, I think it will. Um, yeah. I think there's a very good chance it will. So uh, Kim Jong-il uh, planned to visit uh, Seoul, um, and it was cancelled uh, after the election of George W. Bush. Yes, I think you but said was, when the moment is right or something like that, didn't he? Yes, or at so, the appropriate time? There's or a very, in due course? No, that's 2-1945, sorry. In due course. Uh, but there was a... There was um, so there was a plan for him to come visit. There was some serious preparations made, and then George W. Bush was elected, mm. and the plans fell through. But um, there's a little amusing story that comes with that, which is that so the Kim family uh, are actually originally from the south back in the back in the day. They are the Chonju Kims. They're the Chonju Kims, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. And Chonju is a well, it's in North Chola Province, mm. uh, and they have uh, an ancestral uh, site uh, in North Chola Province, which is maintained um, by. The, by other members of the same clan, right. the same Kim clan, and they uh, the, the clan um, moved to redecorate and renovate the whole site hmm. in preparation for Kim Jong Il to no. come visit. So, so they they would be welcomed, is what you're saying? There would be certain members of the clan who hmm. would uh, extend a welcoming, uh, extend a warm welcome. I'm sure that uh, site has been vandalized multiple times uh, no since it was renovated by uh, extreme, you know, extreme. Oliver, do you think that uh, do you actually see Kim visiting Pyong- uh, Seoul in the next three months? Well, I also had a question because I was wondering. Well, because we reported on this, we said it would be the first time since a member of the Kim ruling family visited Seoul since uh, June nine, July nineteen fifty. Well, there you go. Because um, did well, I was under the impression that Kim Il Sung made a visit while Seoul was occupied by the Northern forces during the war. 
This is what I heard, but it's not. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure of it, but it's certainly possible that he could have come south. Yeah, so that's that's the big question for me. But um, you know, I think he probably will come. You know, his hmm. um, his sister came to the south. Um, that's well, people have been saying. Well, there'll be lots of protests, and I'm I'm sure there will be. Um, but I can't see why if his sister can come here, he can't really. Well, um, um, if you're the uh, if you're in charge of the palace guard, there's a great deal of difference. Uh, in risk to Kim Yo Jong compared to risk to Kim Jong Un, isn't there? Yeah, I mean it's not even close. Like uh, Kim Yo Jong is just—it's not even close. Like mm. Kim Yo Jong is just uh, one of the elite. Maybe I'm the only skeptic in the uh, in the studio here, but we have all three of you convinced that uh, that Kim will make the visit. Well, I won't place any bets either way. I will just adopt my wait and see. Well, what, 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 what is the what is the root of your skepticism, Jacko? Uh, simply that uh, there's far too much. Um, political and personal risk involved to uh, Kim making a visit down south. I mean, yeah, the protests are one thing, but what if there's, um, you know, uh, somebody from the South Korean army who decides to take matters into his own hands? Or um, uh, also, uh, Kim likes to be in a position where he's in control of the narrative. Now, coming to Seoul is a situation where he's completely not in control of the visual uh, spectacle the narrative around his uh, his coming so i think that that's, that's a, a great risk from too was that risk not also there with the singapore visit uh yes but less so than coming to south korea where there are literally millions of people who don't like him uh, very strongly can i can i just ask what does this look like though let's say it happens mm. i'm i want it to happen because i want to see what happens as a result and during the visit right, right. so moon jae-in when he was in pyongyang gave a speech in front of a crowd of what 150,000 200,000 yes know, i've heard multiple numbers 150 at the mayday stadium right so let's say 150,000 people uh, many of whom were not members of state security or members mm-hmm. of you know they were just normal normal pyongyangites right um, and nothing happened except warm applause who is kim jong un going to give a speech to where, yeah. where, where's that going to happen? You know, and um, what, how is the North Korean media going to cover such a visit? Right. How are they going to show Seoul to the North Korean people if yep. they do? And, and will he be driving through Seoul in an open-top uh, Genesis, waving at the ecstatic crowds? That, that I, what he's expecting? That I, I would have trouble um, seeing. I mean, if he were helicoptered into, say, Samchongak, um, which is where the uh, Red Cross talks uh, took place in 1972... Um, I think it's no longer owned by the government. But let's just say, hypothetically, if he were helicoptered into a secret mountain retreat for some talks and then back again, I could see that happening. Yeah. But nothing like what we saw, uh, you know, the spectacle of Moon's visit to uh, to Pyongyang this week. So as far as I know, the two Koreas have to change the Pyongyang declaration at the last minute because of Kim's visit to Kim's promise to visit Seoul. Okay, so that was a last-minute addition to or amendment to the uh, the declaration, and that's uh, a good segue to talking about the declaration itself. Um, it didn't seem a lot more solid or detail-filled than the Panmunjom Declaration of April. What are your thoughts on it, Peter? Well, the uh, promise to potentially decommission the Yongbyon nuclear site seems like a significant with the condition, though. Well, of course, but you it's know, a conditional the- promise, right? Is we will do this in step with America's actions or something like that. But it would be a major step, right? So obviously, the Yongbyon site is a very significant part of the North Korean nuclear program. Mm-hmm. If they were to decommission that site, they would expect something in return. Yeah. Uh, the idea that you know basically the Americans can just impose maximum se- maximum uh, pressure and sanctions in perpetuity until North Korea give them everything is, you know, so far as the North Koreans are concerned, completely ridiculous. Right. Well, and I think the the more substantial commitment from the North Koreans in the agreement is that we have the first commitment on paper by the North Koreans to allow international inspectors in this time to see the decommissioning of the Sohei satellite launching facility. It's been described, been called um, Tonshanri as well. Um, right. But I'd, I'd actually not heard it described as that uh, before. But that's a much more, I think, substantial thing. There's, there's no conditions on that. That's something that's going to happen. They've said we'll allow international observers in. Um, I think there was some ambiguity about what the Koreans said because some people said it meant experts, some people said it meant mm. observers, or is it going to be a repeat of what happened with the Pungiri where we just have journalists right. who don't have a deep knowledge of nuclear science going... Um, and but, nonetheless, talk- but nonetheless, that is um, substantial to some extent, I think. And um, 
Yeah, but surely when we talk about inspections that people want to see in North Korea, it's inspections of nuclear facilities. It's IAEA inspectors having unfettered access to Yongbyon and all these other sites. It's not somebody going to watch a, a missile range being taken right. down. I mean, and these are not the inspections that the world community is asking for. My memory of the Korean is it's Yuguan, Yuguan, Guk, uh, Changguan. Which is, you know, relevant countries, what experts, relevant countries, advisors. So the official translation says, under the observation of experts from relevant countries, mm-hmm. but President Moon clarified that it means irreversible, verifiable um, measures. So, I so think- is he talking about nuclear facilities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's not talking about just limiting it to the missile facility of Dongchangni that uh, Dong Oliver Changni, mentioned. Dongchangni missile test, yeah. So the declaration said that the nurse will permanently dismantle the Dongchangli missile engine test and launch platform under the observation of experts from relevant countries. The observation term itself is quite vague. Mm. But President Moon clarified that it means irreversible and verifiable measures. But it does seem to be clearly limited to it's, one it's specific site missile. that only does missile. Yeah. What test. Stefan Hager did say in a very good op-ed for us this week said that one of the ways to read that if you're reading it optimistically would be that that observing the decommissioning of that site could be a kind of stepping stone Mm. to once you've got international inspectors in the country poking around then you have more leeway to look at say he said maybe go back to Pungiri have a look at that Mm. you know see what's going on there if they really did decommission it as they claimed and maybe look at Yonbyon when it does happen. If so when. basically extend their visa, widen their mandate, yeah. and, and send them out. I mean, once the diplomacy has begun with having the inspectors there, then I think you've got an opening. Right? Well, we have a we have a sequencing issue here, right? So, like, you know, Jonathan Corrado writing for NK Pro um, pointed this out uh, with respect to the peace declaration thing. So, uh, you know, declaring peace in the Korean War. Um, but generally speaking, like, you're asking North Korea to make serious commitments, you know, demolish facilities. What are you offering them in return? Mm. You know, additional pressure and additional demands for complete, you know, denuclearization, or are you going to offer them, you know, with this decommission, with this facility being decommissioned under IAE inspectors or inspections from other relevant institutions, we will, you know, waive it, we will get rid of this UN resolution or this UN resolution. And then... You know, you have to convince the North Koreans that you mean business and that you're not going to renege on this promise when, you know, one one box is not ticked on a form or whatever it is. There, there, is, a, there is also a, a legitimate point to be made that North Korea is saying that we're going to let international inspectors into Tonchanri. Tonchanri. Sorry. Tonchanri. 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 Thank you. Um, is actually quite a good way, equally for them to kick the can down the road a little bit longer because it is ultimately not that significant a site in the broader picture of the nuclear program and it's a way for essentially Moon to say these are steps towards denuclearization and now that we're all talking about that that essentially means that that is now the thing that North Korea is going to do that is symbolic of them denuclearizing and we're going to be talking about it for months and months and months and months and it gives them time right there's time to do what well time to stall negotiations so they can say well this is a step towards denuclearization when actually it isn't an enormously significant step towards denuclearization it's just decommissioning something if anything it'll have more effects on north korea's space program than their actual nuclear mm. program because they have they have the icbms now that's not really a and as for the buying time thing, I mean, Taeyong-ho repeatedly says in his book, as you would know, uh, that uh, every action taken by North Korea in past negotiations about the nuclear issue have been specifically to buy time, to kick the can down the road, to stall, uh, so they don't have to uh, to give it up. But this is sort of implies that all they want to do is just forestall uh, some event that could happen if they don't buy time. I, I don't. What are they buying time to do here? Well, you see, um, unlike in North Korea and every other of the countries that are dealing with, except for China, uh, their leaders change every four or five years with election cycles. And so if you can kick the can down the road a bit further, you'll get another leader and you can start all over again. I mean, but in in both the United States and South Korea, that implies a more hardline leadership, does it not? As in, are the Democrats going to be... So let's say Donald Trump loses uh, the 2020 uh, presidential election. Are the Democrats going to be more soft on North Korea than Donald Trump has been up until now? And in South Korea, you know, as in Moon Jae-in, like, God bless him, but he's not exactly anywhere near as hard line as the last leader or potentially his successor. Yeah, no, I'm not thinking about whether that implies uh, or assumes a hard or soft line leader in the next cycle. I'm just saying that as long as you can keep the ball in motion for the length of this cycle, 
then you can restart it again with the next cycle, with the next leader, whether they be hardline or softline, and just keep the ball going in the air all the time. It's like one of those I mean, video games. There is also a point. But if the ball made. never hits the ground, you never have to do anything about but it. There, there is a point to be made as well that um, th- there is one urgency that the North Koreans have to, as Moon said, have denuclearization as early as possible, which is that one, they want sanctions relief. And two, they are desperate for this economic development that Kim Jong-un has been talking about and that yes. they were relentless in talking about to us when we visited last week. Um, so that is that, I think, for me, suggests there is some desire on their part to speed things up a little bit, mm-hmm. which is why I'm confused by yeah. the Tonshari concession because it is such a, you know, they know that missile experts are going to say, well, this is actually not that much to do with the long-term nuclear program and much more of a kind of, you know, Fake thing. Before I throw my next question at Dagyon, I feel an urgent need to explain to listeners if they're hearing a a hum or a buzz, that's because the air conditioning is on. And if you're hearing any thumping, that's because all of my co-panelists are drinking beers and setting the the cans down on the table. So that might be what you hear in the background from time to time. Now, Dagyon, was the Pyongyang Declaration a de facto end-of-war declaration? A senior official from Blue House, Yun Yong-chan, clarified that the Pyongyang Declaration is actually the practical declaration of the end to the Korean War in terms of that the two Korea actually signed inter-Korean military agreement. So in the inter-Korean agreement, to two Korea agreed to cease all the military exercise in the designated area, and they agreed to withdraw all the GPs in DMZs. So, but as far as I understand, that military agreement is not part of the Pyongyang agreement, right? Right, that was a separate agreement. Uh, but as, as so far as, it's Busok, it is. Yeah, right? yeah, it's it's an addendum. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's Busok Juchi. So, or an appendix. Yeah, yeah, appendix. And the Pyongyang declarations they clearly mentioned that the Korea signed the inter-Korean mm. military agreement and also mentioned joint inter-Korean military commitment. So, um. You know, like everyone knows that U.S. doesn't want to participate in the process of declaring the end of the war as of now. So I think the administrations try hard to persuade North Korea by giving the inter-Korean military agreement as a gift in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, is it, it basically ties the hands of the Americans. Which is very interesting. It's the two Koreas conspiring to prevent America from engaging in some kind of preemptive strike that they were threatening last year. But does the military agreement actually prevent anything like that, though? But it actually provides sufficient conditions for concerned party to declare the like end of the war mm. because yeah, we can make more peace for Korean Peninsula, and it's because has as significance. yeah, because as has been pointed out, there have been four non similar non aggression. Mm. agreements by the two Koreas in the past and that didn't prevent, you know, Young Pyong shelling or the Chonan thinking. Um But not not legally. I'm not talking about law here. But you know, if if the South Koreans come out and say this effectively means the end of the Korean War and this means that well, there will be no future aggressive actions on the part mm. of either side. And then the Americans decide that oh sanctions are not working, denuclearization is not going to happen, let's hit them and hit them hard with some, you know, you know, scuds, not Americans don't have scuds, with some cruise missiles, then it makes them look absolutely, it, the optics of that are terrible. You're creating, you're but creating you, a precedent, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But I have to ask the question, does this military agreement um, take precedence over the Armistice Agreement of 1953? For example, where the Armistice Agreement allows certain flights near the and in the demilitarized zone and disagreement is a no, basically sets up no-fly zones. Uh, there's a disagreement, you know, there's some sort of conflict between those two documents there. Which one takes precedence? Which one has authority? Um, actually, I'm looking into the issues, but the thing is, um, in the military agreement, um, Totu Korea agreed to establish trilateral consultation body, including the United Nations Command. So basically, North and South Korea and United Nations Command will discuss all the issues together, so I think that we'll figure out like which one is above. Okay. Now, what about the issue of the northern limit line out there in the West Sea, the the hot fishing zones between North and South Korea? Do we have a peace zone now? Can is it free for all? Can anyone go anywhere? Basically, no. Um, so the issue is quite ambiguous mm. because um, they basically agreed to establish peace zone and joint fishing zones in the NLL, but they haven't. Dis- 
they haven't agreed on the specific area of the like pistol and fishing area. So they will discuss the issues after Korea established joint inter-Korean committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, you and I have talked about fishing before. Um, would there be quotas, do you imagine? In a, in a, uh, a peace fishing zone? We have to worry about the uh, Chinese. Uh, so we have to worry about whether the Chinese do actually have fishing rights in the, uh, in the That's West right. Sea. They may have bought or leased rights from North Korea for a certain period of time. Right. And if North Korea and South Korea enter into a new agreement with each other, what does that do to China's existing fishing rights? Absolutely. That's a, it's a question. And the North Koreans have never officially acknowledged the sale of these rights. Right. We've we, long suspected, but they haven't acknowledged. Right. And maybe they didn't sell them. We don't know for absolutely sure. Hmm. But if they did, then that's going to create serious jurisdictional issues. I think you could uh, you could say the two Koreas have bigger fish to fry. Oh. But I've got to say, though, like in all due seriousness, before we, before we get all flippant about it, like if... If you could set up some fishing joint ventures between the North and the South, giving North Korean fishermen, you know, safe boats to go fishing in the West Sea and get, you know, kick the Chinese out with some good South Korean Coast Guard enforcement, that would be Tell the Chinese to go fish. I think it's yeah. a feasible idea. Yeah. We're off the hook. Yeah. And you could you could have like a fishing mark so I've had this I've heard this suggestion before from uh, shall I name him? I've heard this from Tony Michelle. Like uh huh. Um, a recent guest on our show uh, selling the idea of creating a sort of inter-Korean, uh, you know, fishing fish market in in the sort of the, in the in the West Sea, um, but it would be a great idea. You could have, you know, you could have sustainable fishing, and you could have South Korean capital and North Korean fishermen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, each side making some money. Of course, yeah. the North Korean regime would profit as well. That's the way things are. But it would be very good for everyone. Yeah, South Korean fishermen always complain a lot about Chinese vessels near the internet. So I think it will both beneficials for both two Koreas. I think it's feasible and good idea. Just okay, need to get rid of those pesky sanctions banning joint ventures. I want to come back to sanctions later. I've got that on my list here. But first, I'd like to talk a bit about the the spectacle and the pageantry, the theater of Moon's visit to North Korea, because certainly. Um, whatever opinions there might be about um, the statement or the agreement itself, definitely uh, this was a successful piece of political theatre for both North and South. What do you think, Tagum? Um, so my personal opinion is that I hope they rather focus on like personal meetings rather than like dramatic shows, mm. including disputes in front of Pyongyang citizens and climbing up mountains. Um, so Moon actually stayed in Pyongyang for three days, but they only had meeting like less than five hours. Mm. So the actual time of the meeting is quite short. It was yeah. quite short compared to the time of the staying, like for three days. Right. What was the highlight, uh, the theatrical highlight for you? Um, I was surprised when I heard the news that Moon would deliver a speech in front of Pyongyang citizens because this is the first time that the ROK president would deliver a speech in front of like many North Koreans. And I couldn't imagine how North Koreans feel about it. Because they would come across like Moon's images in the KCTVs yeah. because they had meeting in Panmunjom twice. But I can't imagine like if I if I come across speech from Kim Jong Un in Seoul, how can I feel about it? Mm. Like so, I have been told in that like oh North Korea is our like enemy and North Korean leader is bad. But I can't imagine how they actually. It would feel about like moon speeds in Pyongyang. Yeah, that was quite something. There was uh, I remember watching the uh, the speech late at night, and my wife was already in bed, and she uh, got out to uh, to watch it because she thought this is really something it really uh, highly was, unusual going on here. It's, no. it's completely unprecedented. Mm. Yeah, no, it really felt. Um, you know, Peter and I were kind of chatting as we were watching it. Together. Really felt very um, historic and a little bit surreal to have North Koreans saying. Man say, you know, to the South Korean president, um, a lot of symbolism there. You know, the speech was extremely, um, there was a lot of nationalism involved. But I think for the North Koreans, there may also be, um, this is the first time they would have seen the South Korean president and the difference between how the South Korean leader speaks um, to, to the people and how their leader speaks. I mean, it must have blown quite a few minds, I think, just the degree of humility 
for yeah, one. I do wonder. Although, and uh, I mean, surely there must have been some degree of uh, self-censorship on the part of Moon that he couldn't just walk in there and do a talk about, yeah. uh, the, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could be one united free country where everyone could just go up and you know, come... Sorry, come back and forth uh, as they want to. But he was talking like a South Korean politician does to a crowd. He was trying to engage the crowd. Mm. He was trying to please the crowd. He was trying to treat the you know he was trying to treat the crowd as if he was talking to one person, and that one person was the centre of his attention. That's not North Korean political rhetoric. That's not the way you know your New Year's address mm. is given uh, in North Korea. It was. Probably. It's a much more democratic style. It was very, yeah, absolutely. And you see North Korean speeches generally when they're given by party secretaries. And it's just a lot of firebrand rhetoric or, you know, revolutionary mobilizational mm. rhetoric. It's very impersonal. It's very general. It's very... And it's, yeah. it's often given at a podium, staring at a piece of paper, reading right. in, a mono- in, in a monotone thing, whereas Moon is... Yeah, great, he's, oh, he's, 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 he's great at speeches. He, oh, he's brilliant. Yeah. He has he well, has yeah. idioms and he has lots of different ways of you know addressing people in different tones and stuff. It was kind of, you know he has a kind of almost Obama style when he's he gives car- speeches. He's very charismatic, and he came it came across. I, Which, I, if I were Kim, I'd be a bit uh, troubled by that. I think it was a display of confidence on his part that mm. he was prepared to let uh, the South Korean president give a speech in front of 150,000 North Koreans. That was a massive display of self-confidence. Oh, he, yeah. didn't, he didn't look particularly happy while doing so. But no, he didn't look very enthused, did he? No. And that was that was kind of surreal, too, because it, it's something that I saw throughout this summit and every summit so far. Moon Jae-in is a, rather more into it. You know, he's he's maybe it's because... He's, his style, but he's very, you know, he really does seem to enjoy and relish, uh, yeah. you know, diplomacy. He's very good at it, but he really does seem to enjoy it. Yeah, I was at the press center yesterday and President Moon came to the press center to hold news briefings for the public right after the summit. And the journalists asked a lot of questions, but we didn't discuss what kind of questions would be there. But Moon's answer were great compared to like others and mm. so I can I could see that like his confidence in person so it was quite impressive yeah he does come across as very confident that's for sure um, the welcome at the airport uh, well actually let, let, let me make it a more broad question Oliver uh, what was the highlight for you the visual highlight uh, out of the three-day summit and then I'll go to Peter for the same question let me have a think. I mean, the, the speech is obviously um, very interesting. I think the visit to Mount Pektu mm. um, was probably um, the, at least the visual spectacle of the South Korean leader going there. And, um, you know, this mountain that we see every day when the North Korean news starts up, it was a bit strange to see that. Um, but Moon made it very kind of very Moon style. He said, well, I've always just wanted to hike this mountain, you know, yeah. um, which is obviously a little bit disingenuous. But, but you can um, hike it from the Chinese side any day yeah, you like. Exactly. But he said, I've always wanted to hike it from the Korean side mm. and um, you know, lots of photo ops taken. They collected a bit of water. The first lady poured some water from Halasan. Which it's a nice free bit of advertising to a South Korean brand of bottled water. Indeed. And which I was also a little bit confused about because they said that the visit to Mount Pektu was a snap decision. But mm. yet somehow the first lady had come prepared with some water from Halasan. Yeah. Um, was she just planning to dump that on the streets of Pyongyang? <laughs> um, Maybe in the Daedong River, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's quite funny about her. Um, so uh, the the first lady of South Korea, uh, Ms. Kim Jong Suk, has the same name as uh, Kim Il Sung's uh, first wife. Right, yeah. the, the mother once once called the mother of all Korea. Right, and uh, two days ago there was a documentary about uh, a museum in Heryong, uh, her museum in Heryong. So uh, Kim Jong Suk, the mother of Korea, uh, was born uh, well was born in Heryong, uh, which is a city in the far north of the country, and they have a museum there for her. They have a statue mm. for her. You know, uh, and there was a documentary about her on TV the same day. Oh, as, wow. uh, yeah, as, uh, it was literally immediately after, like very soon after the broadcast about Kim Jong-suk, uh, First Lady Kim Jong-suk and uh, Ri Sol-ju, the First Lady of North Korea, going and you know seeing a performance together and doing you know First Lady stuff. They then had this documentary on North Korean TV, which is really funny. Actually, that brings me to a, a side question here. Doug Young, what do you think about the significance of the very first time we see um, extended meetings between two first ladies. We, you know, we, we've never had um, 
I mean, Kim Jong-il certainly never had a public first lady with him. And uh, Kim Il-sung, even though he had one, uh, we barely saw her. Uh, what do you think about the significance of the of the two uh, first ladies meeting and talking? Um, actually, um, we have to point out the characteristic of our first lady, Kim Jong-sik. Um, she's very... Um, how can I put in the word? She's very nice. Well, that's one word for it. Yes, nice. Yeah, she's very nice. And I think she's... I think what Dagam's trying to say is that she's like... Her personality is very much like the quintessential middle-aged South Korean lady. She's no, very no, no, affable. No, no, no. She's like a politician. She does know She does know how to like move people, how to mm. treat people. And she's cool in a way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I can say that like Vizharju in a way kind of like her. So many South Korean outlet report that there has there is good chemistry between Kim Jong-sik and our first lady Kim Jong-sik and the DPRK first lady Vizharju. So, yeah. Uh, Peter, back to you. What was your uh, favorite bit of spectacle and pageantry? Well, obviously, um, I think it's got to be the speech. Like, it's hmm. it's it's going to go down. Out of everything that's happened, it will be the one event that is remembered both sides of Korea as being truly unprecedented yeah. and highly significant. Uh, what about the, um, you know, uh, North Korea does the uh, the human LED with the giant uh, flipboards or uh, clap books. Um, the human pixels. Masking. Human, you say pixels, I say LED. Uh, and there was that one image which they showed of um, of Kim and Moon at the very first summit and they're doing the uh, the big handshake, mm. the handshake for the future. That's a, a very memorable moment, I suppose, for me. But they did that for us when we were there. Um, That's right. Last it was week. the same um, image. Yeah, it was like a dry run almost. Um, I was actually impressed when President Moon shaking hands with North Korean resident. So when he visits Samjung County, like so people try to like welcome Moon and Moon try to like shake hands one by one and I can see that Kim Jong un was kinda embarrassed by Moon's kindness. Mm. Yeah. You mean because Moon appears to be uh, more humble Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's more, more modest humble leader. Like leader. You, and the you, no, the ninety degree bow, I mean, is just North Koreans will never have seen that before from a leader. Right. He he got up on stage after a performance mm. and bowed to the people who had performed and then bowed to the audience. It was it was it was spectacular optics. It's a very, very smart thing to do. You present yourself as a humble man of the people. Yeah. You know, you're not that I mean, like, yeah. yeah. the Kim's the Kim family would never do that type of thing. Now to return to the Pectusan visit, the Pectusan of course is um supposedly sacred to North Korea because uh, Kim Il-sung had his partisans there during the anti-Japanese struggle. Kim Jong-il was supposedly born there. We know that's not the case. Uh, the three Kims, father, son, and grandson, are collectively called the Bektu Hiltong, the Bektu bloodline. Uh, is there a significance? To, does it help North Korea to have Moon going up and almost like a pilgrimage, paying homage we don't know. Is that how they would play it in North Korean media? We don't know. So uh, they may decide to play it like that. You know, there are certain media we don't have access to and certain media we do have mm. access to. So in some of their closed access media, stuff that they will not allow um, foreign audiences to see, you know, newspapers, TV channels, um, you know, uh, party uh, le- uh, party lectures, this right. kind of stuff. They may portray it in such terms, but I think it's unlikely they will portray in the open access media like that because they know people like us will be looking. We'll be watching, yeah. Uh, we should say something about the cable cars, Oliver. Oh, the dodgy cable cars. Yes, not, well, the, not the dodgy in and of themselves uh, for safety issues, but because... Well, as always, you know, I think when most people go to North Korea, it's unavoidable that you will probably inadvertently or otherwise violate some kind of international sanction and um when the two leaders of the two careers went up in the cable car i that cable car seemed awfully familiar to me so i mm. i went back into the nk news and nk pro archives and i discovered that it was the same cable car that would be involved in um a couple of years ago 2016 i think it was in a slightly dodgy deal um where an austrian um Ski equipment company had sold some cable cars to a Chinese company that remains unnamed. Mm. Um, and those cable cars mysteriously ended up in North Korea. It's not a sanctions violation um, by Chinese standards because the Chinese never actually submitted their definition of what constitutes a luxury good. Huh. But under EU rules and under US rules, 
it very much is a is a luxury good. So unfortunately, Moon. Um, but then you know. Similarly, I would imagine uh, the uh, the Mercedes uh, that Kim Jong Un is using looked to be a model made in the last ten years, not one of the twenty thirty year old Mercedes Benz that exist in uh, quite some number in Pyongyang. And when he got off the plane, he was on an air choreo. Um, stair thing and that's air choreos under treasury sanctions etc etc right but in, in terms of the luxury goods sanctions one would think that a Mercedes should not be able to be imported into North Korea anymore but it, it could be if it were bought from a uh, a Chinese reseller or, or a second hand dealer or something I think most likely yeah mm. so we should get on to sanctions a little bit there um, obviously all sanctions are still in place we have uh, the United Nations sanctions we have unilateral sanctions imposed by uh, the United States we have sanctions from South Korea we have sanctions from the EU. Um, Where does this leave the possibilities for North-South economic cooperation in the next six months to a year? Well, non-existent. So why did President Moon take all those South Korean business leaders and, you know, bosses of Chebol with him, including the, uh, uh, you know, the grandson of the Samsung founder, the current vice chairman? You know, as as we said, it's, it's just a big carrot, isn't it? It's saying few... Continue down this path. If you denuclearize or take steps towards denuclearization, you'll see sanctions relief. And therefore, after that, you will have all of this lovely South Korean money. Um, we can reopen Kaesong. We can have Kumgang tourism. It's just essentially about saying to the North Koreans, look, and it, I think the timing is perfect because the North Koreans are obsessed with this new thing that they have about national economic development. Mm-hmm. And so saying to the North Koreans, well, we can help you with that. We have the richest, some of the richest people in Asia here. Um, to help you out. Dakum, do you know any specific details about what the business leaders did in North Korea? Who did they meet? What did they do? Where did they go? So, um, so the business leader, including Lee Jae-yong and Choi Tae-yong, actually met North Korean Vice Premier Lee Yong-nam. And there was kind of funny story between meeting between Ri Yong-nam and business leader. Um, so Ri Yong-nam met Lee Jae-yong and he said like, oh, you are famous in various fields. Mm. So it's very <laughs> vague, right? Understatement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, in various fields means, oh, Lee Jae-yong was imprisoned. So, quite recently. Yeah, yeah, so after that day, South Korean media outlet kept asking about what is the meaning of in various fields. So I was at the press center and mm. whenever like official from Blue House I pass from like journalists, journalists I try to get answers. So what is the meaning of various fields? It means it includes imprisonment or just I like mean if you looked at some of the North Korean yeah. some of the North Korean coverage last year of, of his trial and subsequent imprisonment was extremely happy said that samsung was one of the most corrupt country companies in the world so that samsung was like a um like the most brutal company that mm. causes human death and suffering um you know i think the north koreans probably covered a lot of that stuff with a great deal of glee mm. and i'm sure they enjoyed having him there looking awkward but let's go back to the meeting so you said that uh, these business leaders met with the vice premier yeah whose Ri name Nam. is Ri Yong-nam. Ri Yong-nam. And, and do we know what they yeah. Do we know what was discussed? So nothing has been like revealed, but so they just introduced to each other that the public porter has to leave the place. So we don't know what was going on at the place, but, but I think I'm pretty Pe- sure that like inter-Korean economic. Yeah, I mean, Peter. I think his background as an official in the north probably offers some hints as to. So, yeah, interestingly... Please, what is his background? So, there were... Yeah, he's the vice premier. He's not the premier. The yes. premier is in charge of the, uh, the overall... So, under Kim Jong-un, the cabinet has been re-emphasized as being the central locus of economic control. So, you have this sort of cabinet responsibility system, cabinet centrism, which is, you know, basically uh, economic ideology under Kim... Well, it's not ideology. It's a slogan under Kim Jong-un. Um, so, the head of the cabinet is Park Bong-ju, who's in charge, basically, of the yes, domestic now, economy. Why and, did they not meet Park Bong-ju, who as you said, has, uh, is in charge of the domestic economy. He's been an economic um, um, figurehead for many... Well, not figurehead, that's guru. the wrong word. Guru. For many years in North Korea, um, you know, sometimes in power, sometimes out of power. Why did it not meet him? So oh, we don't know, but what do you imagine? So my imagination is very simple. From everything we know about Park Bonju, he is mainly concerned with... Uh, ref- the North Koreans hate the word reform, so let's just say Measures. In, improving improving the uh, the structure of the domestic the domestic economy. Okay. Whereas uh, Ri Ryong Nam is a, 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 
a trade guy, and he has a, a huge background in uh, foreign trade. And mm. so it is in, actually there's an interesting thing here, which is that actually working with South Korea doesn't technically it's not technically counted in either country as trade. So Ri Dong Nam's background is in foreign trade, i.e., trade with China, right. trade with potentially with Russia. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, that's his background. Now, again, I mean, what really, uh, given the sanctions and, and that, that nobody's talking about lifting them anytime soon, what's possible? What? Again, I mean, very little. There's, you know, even the railroad groundbreaking is, is going to be difficult. You know, we've seen that South Korea has been able to get around sanctions. Some would say violate them. Um, you know, through little measures. So the opening of the liaison office was a little bit suspect on that. The um, this UNC thing with the train being cancelled. Um, you know, I think the South and this coal scandal, obviously, that's going on. The South Koreans seem to be able to get away with little um, things. But I think on the, on the bigger picture, which would be on say opening Kaesong, it seems something like that is not going to be able to happen until we have some relaxation. Can they just get exemptions? That is a possibility, um, but they would have to have American approval for it. They would have to have, um, they'd have to go to the UN and say, "Please give us an exemption for this," which I mean could happen. Right? I think that's the idea. Wasn't there also a UN panel of experts report this week talking about uh, sanctions evasion by North Korea? Yeah, on on quite a large scale and with many partners. I mean, as they say, plus a change, you know, it, very reports that we see every year about the usual nefarious activities. Mm. Um, Stepped up. Who would have thought wanting to survive would, uh, you know? Well, if you, if you include uh, importing brand new uh, Mercedes and bottles of Hennessy as uh, survival uh, skills, then yes, I suppose. Uh, now, before Moon left, he received a present from Chairman Kim, a present of something to take back to the people in South Korea. Dagyam, can you tell us about this? So basically, Kim Jong un sent two tons of pine mushrooms to South Korea. So pine mushroom arrived in South Korea yesterday. So so Moon distributed two tons of pine mushroom to four thousand South Korean who has separate families in North Korea. Mm. It's quite meaningful ahead of choose the holidays. But these are the family members who could be meeting their separated family members if only Kim Jong un allowed it. Since he doesn't, he's sending pine mushrooms instead to show what a fun guy he is. I was going to I was preparing to drop that line and Jacko. I am sorry. You stopped me. Oh dear. But I saw one article that one grandmother actually cried after receiving pie mushroom from North Korea. I'm sure they're great mushrooms. Yeah, so, 500 grams per person apparently. Yeah, but it's it's a lot actually. Pie mushroom is really expensive in South Korea, so I think they will really appreciate Kim Jong-un's in a way gift. So is this genus of mushroom at all linked to the famous Matsutake mushroom that the Chongryon got in trouble for yeah, a couple of years exactly, ago yeah. smuggling? Yeah. Is that what a Matsutake mushroom is? I think a Matsutake is also a pine mushroom. It's yeah. extremely fine, mm. rich umami flavor uh-huh. mushrooms that are highly sought after. I saw the photo of mushroom. It's really high quality mm. mushroom. And uh, some people might say that there's a, an analogy to be made there with... Uh, uh, pine mushrooms and North Korean people because you uh, you keep both in the dark and you feed them I can't say it on this podcast it'll get one of those explicit ratings anyway you feed them something I, I'm just just I, I can't get over it. like you know talk, all this talk of mushrooms reminds me of mushroom clouds and it reminds me of the fact we spent the last six years mm. watching North Korea develop more and more sophisticated nuclear weapons and missiles and suddenly they come along and say oh yeah we're, now we're, we're serious about needing a corrosion why is any? Why are we taking this seriously? Well, exactly, and this is only what only a month after them saying this is our sacred sword, which we will never give up. Let's mass produce it, and then very soon afterwards, uh, yeah, we're ready to talk. So we have some people uh, in the Twitter sphere. Is that was it? The Twitterverse. I can never remember the right word. The Twitterati. Oh, the Twitterati. Uh, some who say that we need to, the world needs to accept um, that North Korea will always have a missile or a, a nuclear weapon or two. Um, but what we, the best we can hope for is that they won't, um, you know, flaunt it. I think the the argument that's the comparison that's now being made is to Pakistan, which had a illicit nuclear program for a very long time, received a great deal of international condemnation, and then eventually we all just accepted that Pakistan and India 
and yeah. India. But obviously, India um, is a bit of a little bit less of a controversial country um, from the oh. point of view of, uh, of Israel and um, from the point of view of. Uh, many others as well. The, da- the danger with Pakistan was always that people worried that the nuclear program would be um, insecure and that it would get end up in the hands of extremists. Um, but we all seem to have accepted now that Pakistan has nuclear weapons and um, the Mr. A.Q. Khan, mm. who has the, helped the Pakistanis develop that program and then subsequently helped the North Koreans get their own, is now enjoying a very comfortable retirement in the, uh, I think, the suburbs of, his, of Karachi. Um, for fellow. Well, yeah. you, you got Let's just look at it from Kim Jong Un's perspective. Like, if he gives up nuclear weapons, he's mm. potentially defenseless. Um, you know, he, he will not have a deterrent. And there are a lot of people in a lot of. There are a lot of. Basically, every neighboring country yeah. has sizable uh, minorities, uh, potentially political majorities, that would like to see him removed from power uh, through force. Okay, so coming up in the next week or two, we have the UN General Assembly in New York, at which uh, President Moon is expected to brief or debrief uh, President Trump on on the summit. What do you expect, Dagyom? So Moon said there has been messages that he can actually include in the joint declaration. So I think Moon will definitely deliver hidden messages from North Korea. Um, so we kept asking about what is the hidden messages, but mm. Moon said, oh, I can't reveal it here. So is it another handwritten letter maybe to President um, Trump? I don't think so. Um, Oh, my understanding is that North Korea sent letter to President Trump four or five days ago. Mm. Oh, but, very recently. Yeah, very recently. So I don't believe yeah they would pass a lot of letters to President Moon. Mm. But I think Moon probably deliver messages from Kim to Trump. Yeah, I think in- there's there's a decent chance we'll get some kind of not necessarily bombshell, but some kind yeah. of major development after it, that. Yeah. Like we had when um you know the South Korean envoys went to the north and then they went to DC and then Chung Yeon said, Oh, there's gonna be a US DPRK summit. I mm. think it, we might get that type of thing, hopefully. Well, um will there be uh, a second Trump Kim summit before the year is out, Peter? I hope so. Yes. I really hope so. You think it's likely? Mm, 50-50. 50-50, Dagyam? Um, yes, I think likely to take place because the reason why Kim Jong-un want to visit Seoul is that I believe it's all because of declaration of the end of two Korean War. Mm-hmm. So it's meaningful that if three leaders visit Seoul together ah. and announce the declarations of the end to the Korean War. So two take place to to the end, Moon and Trump should meet in Washington or other place before his visit to Seoul. So I think it will likely happen. I think a lot of it will hinge on this Pompeo going back to Pyongyang thing, which Kim Jong-un, Moon said yesterday that he want, that Kim Jong-un wants Pompeo to visit Pyongyang as soon as possible. Well, let's I linger think, on that a moment. Because well, yeah, the, last, because the last Pompeo trip, to Pyongyang was um, a bit of a disaster. Well, it was cancelled. We had to scrap a whole podcast that we recorded the day before <laughs> it went the one, because of it. The actual visit was, still a, upset about was that. a complete disaster and um, ended up in a very ill-tempered North Korean uh, statement about gangster-like demands. Did so, you write that statement, Jacko? Uh, well, as an, an ill-tempered Jacko should not be writing statements. Um, yeah, so we'll have to see how it goes. You know, the Americans might go to Pyongyang and do what they did last time and say, look, nothing's changed. Give us some more serious commitments and then we'll talk. And then the North Koreans will obviously be annoyed about that and then we're back to square one. Mm-hmm. But Pompeo invite Byung-ho to meet in oh, New yeah, York on the sideline of U- U- Sorry, United Nations. Pompeo invited whom? Byung-ho, the oh, okay, foreign ministers, right. yeah, to visit New York during the period of Unga. Hmm. So I think... The, if- that's the United Nations General Assembly for our listeners back home. So if we and Mike Pompeo have so-called fruitful discussions, yes. I think that will make a huge progress in refreshing DPRK-US negotiations. Do we know yet whether Ri Yong-ho is going to New York or he's, just that he's been he's, invited? He's making a speech on the 29th at the assembly. Oh, so Ri Yong-ho definitely is going. He is. Um, 29th of... September. This month, okay, so just next week. Will it be broadcast live? Because we should I, definitely watch it. We should all gather around. It certainly will be broadcast live, definitely as it will be at the UN General Assembly. Um, 
whether or not he'll give the firebrand speech that he gave last year. If you recall, last year he actually was wandering around New York and bumped into some reporters and then told reporters that North Korea would nuke the Pacific Ocean, um, which was a great little piece of North Korean diplomatic. Was he angry because he couldn't find Times Square and this was his way of hitting back? Um, you know, we've all been to Times Square and that's made us more, more angry, if anything. I think yeah. after visiting- You guys have got to study the fishing industry. Like, Please. You know, if you think about all of the fish that could have been destroyed by a North Korean nuclear surface test in the Pacific Ocean, like, you wouldn't be making jokes about it. Perhaps he was just thinking of having a big fry-up. <laughs> I also remember that Rio said, like, barking dogs. It was about yeah. barking dogs, yes. yeah. And remember, Rio yeah. is the foreign ministry is supposed to be the softliners. <laughs> Yeah, something to think about there. Uh, final thoughts, Peter? Uh, well, uh, we seem to be at an impasse unless the Americans will move. Uh, that is the situation that the two careers have engineered. Um, whether the Trump administration will decide that the concessions that have been offered are the basis for a, a bargain that will allow North Korea to keep some of its nuclear weapons, keep some of its missile deterrent, uh, we'll have to see. Um, I'm inclined to believe that... Uh, the mood in Washington is very hard line, but they, the Trump administration desperately needs. Uh, I'm sorry, the Trump administration would like a deal. Uh, and Oliver, final thoughts? Yeah, I think as Peter said, the two Koreas have, have perhaps deliberately engineered this, so now it's all in the hands of Trump. And I think Trump, from his immediate reaction to the summit, he seemed very happy. And as we know, this White House is pretty much all about the president's whims. Um, so I think maybe moving forward, we're going to have good, um, good relations. I suppose if things go well next week, we may see another summit this year. Um, we'll have to see that there seems to be a inverse relationship between when Trump is under a lot of domestic political pressure. He seems to have this strange desire to just push for agreements with the North Koreans. And then when things Mm -hmm. are going slightly better for him, he seems to be a little bit more, you know, lets the State Department take care of business. So things are going terribly for Trump domestically right now. So we'll have to see. And the last word to Dakyung. So I hope I can cover two more summits <laughs> in the, this year, even though have it's a really... Have holiday first. Yeah, demanding, yeah. <laughs> No rest for the wicked, Dagum. Okay, well, thank you once again to Dagum, Oliver, and Peter for coming on the NK News podcast and reviewing the latest news about North Korea. Don't forget you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. You can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News membership, so please review us after listening and you might win. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Do share this with your friends, enemies, and uh, acquaintances so that our listenership can continue to grow. And listen again next time. <laughs>